The book of Hebrews chapter 11 beginning in verse 29 says, By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. You know, for, for being a time period referred to as the Enlightenment, it sure did create a lot of darkness. As we kind of look back into history a little bit, we have Darwin with his theory of the survival of the fittest, and then Nietzsche with his philosophy of God being dead. And that philosophy is what some of the world leaders picked up and ran with, and those would be people like Stalin, Mussolini, Hitler, and even some others of some lesser countries even that we're dealing with, even up into today when we look at the regime in North Korea. Philosophy of the Enlightenment led to more bloodshed than all the history of the world combined coming up to the 20th century. Within that darkness, there were some bright spots, and one of those bright spots was Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill refused to give up, and he became uh, the Prime Minister of, of England. Hitler was taken over Europe and moved in on France. And at the time, Winston Churchill took over. Many people even thought that, you know what, maybe it's just time to secede to Hitler and give in to some of his demands and and figure Europe as a lost. But, you know what, Churchill was not of that mindset. And it was neat to see the courage that he stood up with. One of the quotes that I found of it was him making a speech before Parliament. And he said, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and the oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And even if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until in God's good time the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. He was determined, no matter how bleak it looked, to stand and to fight against this horrible force. And he, he was one of the few people that saw it for what it was. Now, I don't know a lot about the faith of Churchill himself. I, I don't think he was primarily a religious man. But he did recognize, he often called the conflict of that war, the world war, as a conflict over the rescuing of a Christian civilization. 
So he saw the godlessness of the communist parties and what, they, what that had accomplished within, within Russia, within Germany, within Italy, in these different places. And he recognized that that philosophy was trying to stamp out Christianity. In fact, Hitler would use the same terminology to refer to the Jewish problem. He would also refer to the church problem. But he recognized that he could not gain the power that he needed if he offended the church too early. So that had to wait. And so Churchill saw this conflict for what it, for what it was and was determined to stand against it no matter the cost. Uh, I think it was about ten months later, he gave a speech at a school that he had been enrolled in as a student. And in that speech at that school, he tells these young boys, he says, never give in. Never give in. Never, never, never in nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force, never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. When he died, somebody said there was the, that is the end of the giants. Right there. He was a very strong and courageous man. Well, the reason that I bring him up today is because that's a little bit of a good illustration for what we're talking about. As we look through the end of this last part of the chapter of 11 of Hebrews, that's what we see. We see courageous people. We see the courage of faith exercised in their life. Up to this point, we've seen a lot of things exercised in people's life. We've seen the worship of faith in Abel. We saw the walk of faith in Enoch. saw the work of faith in Noah. Right? We saw the obedience of faith in, in Abraham. Decisions of faith in, in Moses and in his parents. But today we're looking at, as we kind of sum up these, the last of these, it's really about courage. All these people willing to stand against great odds, just like Churchill did against great odds in defending off Hitler and refusing to give in, never giving up. That's what we see in these people. It was ignited by their faith in God. Now, as we look down through this, the first thing that it points out about it is the necessity. The necessity for a courageous faith. Up to this point in the book of Hebrews, as we look at the book at a whole, he's been doing two things. If you'll remember with me, he's one showing the superiority of Jesus Christ. And he shows us that Christ is superior to everything that the Jewish people held dear. That he was superior to the angels. He was superior to Moses. He was superior to the priesthood of Aaron. The new covenant is superior to the old covenant. It's based on better promises. And everything about Christ is superior. Now at the same time, we've been coming across these warning passages. There's five different warning passages throughout the book of Hebrews. And those are places where the author comes alongside the people and says, look, if you don't stand in faith, then you're not of faith. And that means you're outside of the blessings of God. Some of them that we mentioned in our testimony time earlier as we mentioned salvation and eternal life. And he's saying, look, if you don't stand for Jesus Christ, then you're outside that faith. You're outside the deliverance. And to this he would use examples of their forefathers also. That under the leadership of Moses, they continually tested God, continually fell away from God, continually rebelled against God. And he says, look, if you turn away now, you've made a profession of faith in Christ. But if you turn your back on Christ and go back to your old lifestyle, it just shows that your profession was empty, that it was hollow, that you didn't really have, you're really not a person of that faith. Because if you're a person of faith, you'll stand and you'll endure what takes enduring. You'll have that courage. 
And that's the same thing that he's doing with them right here because notice the first couple examples that he gives. The first one is the people under the leadership of Moses coming out. They've come out of Egypt and they come up to the edge, the banks of the Red Sea. And they're up at the bank of the Red Sea and then they see Pharaoh coming in behind them. God parts the sea before them and they walk across on dry land. And it says, through faith, the people walked across as if on dry land. And they get to the other side. And then what happens? Pharaoh and his army come into the Red Sea. And they're coming across the dry land. And what happens? God closes the sea back up. The waves come crashing back down on them. And they're drowned. So see, that's the point that he's making. He's saying, look, the faithful deliverance through the Red Sea, the unfaithful Egyptians drowned. And then the next example that he gets also has two parts. And it's dealing with Jericho. Forty years later, they come up to the promised land. And again, God parts waters for them. He parts the Jordan River this time. And they cross the Jordan River on dry ground. Now, when they get to the other side, there's the fortified city of Jericho. It's a big walled city. Now, when when we usually think about walls, it doesn't quite show it. A couple years ago, we went down to San Antonio to visit my parents while they were down there, and we got to go to the Alamo. And on the Alamo, the outside walls of the Alamo, many parts of that are like apartments on the outside wall. So the people were actually, the outside wall of their home was the part of the outside wall of the Alamo. Well, that's what it was like in the walls in the walled cities back in that time. In fact, they've been known to have huge, wide walls And a lot of times it's like an apartment building wrapping all the way around the city. And some of the cities have even been known to have hosted chariot races on top of the wall around the city. Wouldn't that be a sight? So that's obviously an enormous wall. Now, that's the way the, the city of Jericho was. When the spies go in to spy out Jericho, and then they they go to this prostitute's house, Rahab, her apartment is part of the outer wall of the city. And she hides them from the authorities and then lets them go in a way that would be safe for them. And she says, all I ask is this. She says, I know that God's handing our city over to you. All I ask is that you rescue me when you come. And they said, you know what? You hang a red ribbon out your window so that we know where your apartment is and you'll be safe. And that's exactly what Hebrews uses here. Israel marches around the city once a day for seven days. The last day, they march around it seven times. And at the end of the seventh time, they give an extra loud blast on these trumpets by the priests, and the walls come tumbling down, I would say, except for where Rahab's was, obviously. The unbelieving, the wicked city of Jericho is destroyed, but that one believing person and her family within sight of it, we don't know how many, were rescued because of her faith. And that's exactly what he's saying with both of these first two illustrations. He says, look. Look at all the people of faith that are delivered in the Red Sea. Look at the unbelievers drowned. Look at the unbelieving populace of Jericho that is destroyed. Look at the person of faith, Rahab, and her salvation in the midst. You see, the point that he's making is everything's on the line here. This is either we're in or we're out. Either we're delivered through our faith or we're destroyed without it. It is completely necessary to have faith. And that's the point that he's been making through the whole book. He's telling us, look, all these positive examples of faith. We've looked at Sarah and Abraham and Abel and Enoch and and Moses and his parents and, and, and Isaac and Jacob. And we've looked at all these positive examples of faith. 
If you follow their examples, you show yourself to be a person of faith. If you can fall, if you can turn back and go to your old life, shows that your faith was hollow. You've got to have this faith. Everything is on the line for this faith. Our whole eternal future, our eternal destiny, is on the line for by whether we have faith. Not only do we see the necessity of this courageous faith, but we also see the quality of courageous faith. Now, as, as we go through this next part of the list, he lists them kind of in categories. Not chronologically, necessarily. They're out of order a little bit that way. But he starts listing, he lists judges and kings, well, just King David, and prophets. But he goes through and he talks about Samson and Barak and, and Jephthah. And, and you know what? All these people, all these people are people that blew it. I know when I start to read through this part of the list, I think, man, uh, I shouldn't have mentioned that guy. I probably shouldn't have mentioned that guy. <laughs> because, I mean, Samson, he was, kind of a, he was kind of a womanizer, broke about every... In fact, he had three rules when he started life. No, no drinking uh, wine or strong drink. No touching anything dead. And no cutting your hair. Because he was a Nazarite. It was a, a specific thing for a specific vow. His strength was taken away in exchange for weakness when he did the last of those things. He'd already broken the other two commands. Samson's not really your stellar example of the Christian life. But he did rise up when it was needed. And he did step forth boldly and courageously in faith. And at one time slew a thousand people with the jawbone of a donkey. He was there for the purpose of tormenting Israel's enemies, the Philistines. He's kind of like, I understand, and the hockey team has to have their enforcers. They kind of have the ugly part of the game, right? The putting the people into the boards and those kinds of things. Well, that's what kind of what Samson was for Israel. I look at the list and I think... Samson made the list? Jephthah? Jephthah is the guy that goes out and has this, this dynamic victory for God. Comes back and make a rash vow and ends up killing his daughter. Horrible. Okay, who didn't make the list? Elijah's name. Elisha's name's not on the list, though both of them could be... Uh, it would ring a bell when it talks about women having their dead brought back to life because both of them raised a widow's son. One of them uh, uh, from Zarephath and, and the other one uh, the Shunammite. Both of them raised a widow's son back to life. And so they would be, that would ring a bell with these people. Isaiah, nothing mentioned about Isaiah. Nothing mentioned about Jeremiah. Though Isaiah is probably a little bit of a reference to him about some, when they talked about people being sawed in two. Tradition tells us Isaiah was sawed in two. When I look at this list, I see people that had failures, but yes, were also stood up, also trusted God. And, you know, that's, that's a thing. A lot of times we're tempted to throw out the baby with the bathwater in a sense. One of the things that I see being dealt with with our forefathers in our nation is I see a lot of tearing down. And we find something in the life of one of our forefathers because of this thing that they did that was very wrong, then we're going to dismiss everything that we did. And we're starting to talk about pulling down monuments and things like that and not recognizing the good things that they did for the nation because of something that they did that was bad. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think anybody should just be given a pass on the evil in their life, I think we should do like the Bible does. The Bible recognizes that people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We think about David, man after God's own heart, committed adultery and murder. But you know what? When we look at David's life as a whole, for the most part, David lived a life of faith. He blew it and he blew it big on a couple different occasions. But there's a lot to be learned from his faith as well. And so I think we need to be careful when we start tearing down monuments and saying, oh, this person didn't have anything good to contribute to our nation because of this one particular thing they did or that particular thing they did. When I look at even God's hall of faith in here, I see a lot of, a lot of people. A lot of people that blew it on occasion. A lot of people that fell short. But you know what? 
that's also encouraging to me. Because I've blown it. I fall short. And I think here's God. God's commending these people. In other words, God's approving of these people. Now, He's not approving of everything they did. But He's saying, these people are mine. And you know what? That gives great hope and encouragement to me. Because I know that even though I've blown it, even though I don't deserve it, God can look at my faith and say, you know what? He's mine. He belongs with me. And it, it, it emboldens my faith. It makes my faith more courageous, more uh, able to stand. And that's exactly what he's trying to do with these people. They've got some moments where they've struggled in their faith. That's why he's writing to them. He's saying, telling them, look, I, I'm pretty certain from your past and what I know of you that you're a person of faith and that you're somebody that is inheriting salvation. But some things that I see in your life right now are making me wonder. You know, some of those things that they have cowered away from, some of those things that they may have faltered in are probably tormenting them a little bit. And when they see people like Samson and Jephthah, Barak, who wouldn't go into battle without Deborah, maybe they can get a little encouragement from that as well. But he's not using the weaknesses of these people to encourage him. He's using the faith. Look, even though these people struggled along the way at different times, they were people of faith. They were people that stood up. They were people that didn't turn their back on God. They trusted they accomplished. In fact, that's the next thing that he goes into is he starts to list their accomplishments. What did they do through faith? And he, he starts to list out all these accomplishments. And what are those accomplishments? Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. You know, some of the Bible stories just leap off the page when you read through those things. Stop the mouths of the lions. I think of Daniel, doesn't your mind go right to Daniel in the lion's den? And he stood courageously for his faith, continued to pray three times a day by that window, no matter who heard him, even after they made a law against it, and was thrown to the lion's den and God rescued him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who refused to bow down to the, to the idol. And when you're all out in assembly and everybody drops on their knees, if you don't bow with them, you stand up like a sore thumb. They're standing there boldly, not bowing before the image. And it gets them cast into the fiery furnace. But God rescues them through that fiery furnace. And you know what? Through faith, amazing things have been accomplished. Through trusting in God, a group of slaves came out of the biggest empire at the time out from under the Pharaoh of Egypt. A bunch of people marching around a city and the walls fall down. Amazing things can happen through faith. Amazing accomplishments. But you know what? It's not only the accomplishments that we need to acknowledge. It's also the endurance. Because then he goes on from that part of the passage and he, he starts to deal with the rest of it which aren't really accomplishments in the sense of winning battles or even being rescued. It starts to deal with the negative side of those things. And it says with just kind of a general statement to begin with, it says some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. They could have accepted release, but what would it take? It would take denying their faith. This is talking about people, and there have been many down through the ages that have been put in the position of either you renounce your faith and you live, or you hold to your faith and you die. If you read back through some of the dark ages and some of the things that happened to the believers within the church there, some people were drowned, things tied around their ankles and thrown over the side of a boat. Some people were burnt at stakes. All these horrible, torturous ways of putting people to death. The apostles themselves, Peter was, Peter was hung upside down on a cross and put to death that way. 
And you look at the tradition of the apostles, and all of them were put to death in horrible ways, except for the apostle John. He's the only one that died of old age, and even he was boiled in oil, so he was tortured, and then exiled out to the island of Patmos. Horrible things these people had to go through, and they could have stopped it. They could have said, all right, never mind. I'll renounce Christ, go back to their home, back to life as usual. But they wouldn't do it. And it goes on to say, others suffered mocking and flogging. These are some of the things these people were starting to experience there. And even chains and imprisonment. Remember back in chapter 10 and all the things that these people had been suffering up to that point? These are some of the things that they also were suffering now. And they're looking back and he's pointing to all these people of faith and saying, look, they suffered those things in the path and they held in there. They remained faithful. You're starting to suffer those things now. You hold in there. You remain faithful. It's better for you if you remain faithful. But then he says they were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. You know what that's referring to. Sometimes even for sport, they would bring Christians into the arena and they would dress, they would dress them up in, in sheep skins and goat skins and then turn them loose with the lions and, and wild animals and watch them be destroyed. Destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. So obviously those people are people that are exiled from their home, kicked out from their home. They're hunted people. They're out hiding in caves and in deserts and, and wherever they can find that they can live. So they're on the run. And he describes his life with his people and he says, look, people have endured this kind of thing before. If you've got to endure that now, endure that now. What is the difference? Do you ever ask yourself that? Some people had said, are in the list of accomplishments. Shut the mouths of lions because of his faith. Other people fed to the lions because of their faith. Daniel, for his faith, gets thrown into the lion's dead and God shuts the mouth of the lion. Other people are dressed in skins and get eaten. Some escape the edge of the sword, it says. Others die by the sword or are sawn in two. Some win in battle and some are put to death. Both of them happen because of their faith. At one moment, they're standing strong and they're able to overcome great odds and they do great things because of their faith. At other times, they're, they're able to hold faithful even though suffering some of the most horrid persecutions that you can think of. You know what? Faith doesn't always look the same. Now, faith is holding faithful. Sometimes in our life, we get to accomplish great things because of faith. Sometimes in our life, we have the ability to suffer great things because of faith. What is the difference? Well, I suppose at the moment when Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, God wanted to use Daniel's situation to bring honor and glory to himself and good for Daniel and encouragement for many people down through the ages. God would also use the lives of people that would suffer horrendous things for him as well. And you know what? I don't know in my life in the future, I don't know what it's going to be. Maybe it's going to be a little bit of a both. Maybe I'll be called upon to do great things for God. And we all say amen to that, right? Maybe I'll be called upon to suffer great things for God. It's just as awesome. We're not so quick to say amen to that. But it's just, it's just in the sovereign will and purpose of God. What faith is, is recognizing that God, whether things are going good for me and I'm overcoming and, and, and I'm winning victories, then following you is better. But God, when I'm being persecuted and when I'm having my home taken away from me and when I'm locked in prison, when I'm about to die, when I'm breathing my last breath, it is still better for me. To be faithful to you. That is faith. Good or bad, complete confidence in God. 
That's what the Apostle Paul experienced. One of the often quoted verses in the Bible is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Look at the context of that verse. I can abound and I can be abased. I can have everything and I can have nothing. And I can do it all for Christ. It's not always about winning the game. Sometimes it's about losing it appropriately in this game of life. Somebody described faith in in this way. They said there's four different kinds of faith. There's a faith that receives, and you compared that to salvation. We receive the gift of eternal life. There's a faith that reckons, that just trusts God to handle things on our behalf, that knows that He has our best interest in mind. Even if we're short-sighted and can only see the things going on around us at the moment, God who sees all of eternity has our best at mind. Faith that risks. These are probably your ones that won the battles. These are your risk-takers. And he said there's also a faith that rests. And those are the ones that in, the, in those times of your life that are harsh, that are hard, that are difficult to endure. You rest in God's care, trusting in Him. Lastly, we also see the need for courageous faith. As we look at the very end of the passage, we see the need for this courageous faith. It says, "...and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised." So notice, he says, all these. Now, what are, what are the all these that, are, that he's talking about? It's all of them. In other words, it's the ones that win the wars, and it's the ones that are put to death. It's the ones that are rescued from the lions, and the ones that are fed to the lions. All of these people together, he says, none of them received the promise. At this point, you're saying, now wait a minute, is that really encouragement to hang on? If they were hanging on to this faith, and they didn't receive the promise, then why would we hold on? Because God, what God's doing at this point is He's letting us in on His plan. Right? He's saying, they, Abraham was promised this great promise. He never got to see it. Isaac never got to see it fulfilled. Jacob never got to see it fulfilled. We still haven't seen it fulfilled. Because it's not time yet. That's, that's what He's doing right here. He's, he's, he's explaining this. And he says, so none of them, whether they died or, or did these great things, none of them received what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. They did not see all these promises fulfilled yet because the promise includes you. The promise includes me. And so God has something better. His promise isn't short term. It's a long term promise. And so God is fulfilling His promise, but it's not going to be fulfilled until the last person comes to Christ. You know what? I find that greatly encouraging. In fact, I find that gives me a lot of ability to bolster my faith. And here's why. You know what? I got saved. I came to Christ June 2nd, 1985. So when I repented of my sins, put my faith in Jesus Christ. I was 20 years old. I am so glad that God didn't bring things to an end June 1st, 1985. I would have missed it by a day. And then I became a parent. I became a father and I have kids and I'm teaching my kids the gospel and I'm, I'm raising them up, trying to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and I want to see them come to Christ. And I also want Christ to come back. But I'm thinking, Lord, if you could wait for them. Kind of like the, the Apostle Paul. He said, it would be better for me by far to go, but better for you if I stay, so I'm content to stay. That's kind of the, the friction of a Christian's life. Lord, even so... Come quickly, Lord Jesus, like John, John would say at the end of Revelation. But at the same time, Lord, we've got to bring these with us. And then I become a grandparent. And now as a grandparent, I'm looking at my grandkids. I'm saying, Lord, you can wait for them. Why? Because oh, that's so much better if they're there. That's exactly what he's telling these people. He's saying, you know, why it's, you know why those people didn't receive the promise? Because you wouldn't have if they did. And now you're going to. And you know why you're still not receiving it yet? 
you probably have some struggles you're still going to go through in your life and things. You know why it's still not being brought to an end right yet? Because there's still more people. There's still some more people that are coming to Christ. The Bible tells us in the book of Revelation when it gets down toward the end, it's going to finally come to the point where people's hearts are so hardened that they will refuse to believe in Jesus Christ. And you know what? That's when the end's going to come. But for right now, not yet. Second Peter, in his epistle, chapter 3, he says the same, teaches the same thing there. He says mockers will come in the last day and say, where is the promise of Christ coming? It's been, it's been 2,000 years. He hasn't come back yet. Obviously, he's not coming. Wrong. He's just very patient with us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We need this courageous faith because the promise isn't over yet. It's not fulfilled yet. It's, it's coming. But we desperately need this courageous faith to get us to that end. Up to that point, we've got accomplishments to make and we've got things that we've got to endure. 